Thank you, Steve. It is good to be here this way among you again today. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Jonah chapter 1. That's where we'll be focusing this morning. In a very familiar book, but I pray that our familiarity with it would not lend us to overlook what God has in store for us today. So read along with me quietly to yourself as I read from Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah. And they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Well, I love stories that take the protagonist from zero to hero. I don't know if you know the stories I'm talking about, the one where... The main character starts as nothing and works his way up to be something, to be something great. Stories like the original Rocky movie, the story of a boxer who who has no business being in the ring with the world heavyweight champion. Nevertheless, he's given the opportunity to fight the champion. Not wanting to squander his opportunity, Rocky Balboa works hard toward one goal. His goal is to go the distance 
with Apollo Creed, the champion, something that's never been done before. The opportunity ignites something inside of him. I love movies like that. Like we as a culture love stories like that. But it's not just movies and stories that we love. We love schemes that will put us on track for that type of success. Things that will ignite what is inside of us, like Rocky. And as such, motivational books and seminars are big sellers. People like Tony Robbins use titles like Awaken the Giant Within. And with things like this, they've sold more than 50 million motivational programs. Robin says, for most people, the fear of loss is much greater than the desire for gain. The fear of loss is much greater than the desire for gain. Is that really what's keeping us from gain, though? Maybe. Ironically, though, the first question that popped up on Google about Tony Robbins' book was not, how do I get this book? Or what are the steps to success that he lays out? No, the biggest question was, how long will it take me to read this book? (laughs) That's pretty revealing about who we are, isn't it? We love Rocky Balboa because we all want to think that we could be Rocky Balboa. That the giant within just needs to be awakened. But we don't have what it takes. And we carry it into our religion. We want to make ourselves presentable to God. To be favored by him and what we do. To muster some goodness that God will look upon us. And this appeals and it applies to every religiously minded person, which is everyone, by the way, that has ever existed. We're all seeking to reach back to God, but we all fail because we presuppose and we overestimate our own initiative and ability to reach God. We inflate the ability of man. We take ourselves back to Babel as if we can build a tower mighty enough to reach back up to God. But in doing so, we make God very small, diminishing his holiness and undermining his gospel, suggesting that he's just like us, but maybe a little bit higher. The scripture does not reveal him that way. And it does not reveal us that way. When it comes down to it, we tend to be pretty frail and incapable, as revealed in Scripture. Now, that's not a message that's going to sell like Rocky. And I'm not going to have the same appeal as Tony Robbins. I'm a lousy pitch man, and I know it. Or at least I'm a disinterested one. But while I may not be building you up, let me offer you some company in your misery by way of confession. I don't think that all sermons need to begin with a confession. In fact, most should not. That's not necessary for you to receive preaching. But God has set this morning up uniquely to expose me to you in all my yuckiness, in all my self-righteousness. You heard it earlier in my testimony. I tend to be a very critical person, one who overemphasizes himself and undermines the gospel and the holiness of God displayed in it. And while that is miserable company to be present with, 
I don't come to you to preach my own gospel. But I preach to you one that is gospel because it is built upon the holiness of God in spite of me, in spite of you. So through my preaching this morning, in a way, you're looking at the irony that we find in the book of Jonah. And not just because I come to you as a boy from Kansas who had never seen the ocean until a few years ago to preach to you about a fish in the ocean. No. It's ironic because Jonah is the display of a very gospelless prophet. A book about a prophet of God, a man whose job is literally to profess God's word as it is directly revealed to him. This should be our hero. This should be our religious icon. He should be our image. But Jonah is shown to be an upside down prophet. Less like Rocky Balboa and more totally flawed and upside down. But through him, the gospel shines very brightly. What do I mean by gospel? Well, I mean that God takes twisted and warped people like me and like Jonah. And he redeems them by the blood of Jesus. In short, God rescues people who reject him. And that is gospel. That is good news. So I don't think it's a random occurrence that I preach this sermon to you. First, because I don't believe that God deals in random. I believe that he's appointed this morning for you to be here to hear this message from me. But more on point, because Jonah is not just a mirror to my upside down condition as an upside down preacher or prophet, if you will, but to all of our upside down conditions. There's not one of us who can reach God, making much of ourselves will never make us reach God. If we were honest or thinking about ourselves rightly, there's not any of us who has not or does not try to ascend to reach God. And in doing so, we make little of God and we fail miserably. And so we are mirrored in Jonah. And so the book of Jonah stands in stark contrast to our motivationally minded culture and to our own personal religions that we all build. And it's designed that way on purpose to take us, as Jonah typifies, self-sufficient and thinking that we're able and turning us on our head, revealing those who love God to be an upside down people of God. But people of God, nonetheless. So the purpose of this sermon is that you would see God as the champion and the giant of our salvation. And that this subtle change would chip away at your carnality. And it would rouse affection, spurring you to a more pure worship of God as the one who rescues and continues to hold his people in his glorious gospel, if you are his child. And that this sermon would drive your need for God deeper into your heart 
so that this need urges you not to outgrow the gospel, but to put on God's gospel every day as a garment to wear. Because it reflects you truly and rightly as a broken person who elevates God in his holiness. May God do so in all of us for our good and unto his glory. So let's turn back to Jonah 1 this morning. That will be our focus. And the main point of Jonah chapter 1 is this, that God has appointed rescue for his people who are in rejection of him. Let me repeat that. God has appointed rescue for his people who are in rejection of him. So to understand this chapter better, let's break that apart and think about each part. If you're a note taker, these will be our only two points this morning. And there's even blanks on the backside of your bulletin to fill in if you so choose. So we'll take those in reverse. Point one is that we are rejectors of God. We are rejectors of God. Of God. See, the basic assumption that we need rescue from God means two things. That we are in imminent danger, number one. And two, that we either cannot or will not rescue ourselves. But what has put us in such danger? Well, as we see in Jonah, it's our rejection of God. The book of Jonah begins without much setup. Just an instruction for Jonah. Starting in verse one. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, we see from this simple message that Jonah knows the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes with clarity and simplicity in three parts. He's to arise and go to Nineveh. He's to call out against it because it's evil. He knows where to go. He knows what to do. And he knows why to do it. Jonah does not have any excuse for not going. There's no cognitive barrier for Jonah to understand. He's a prophet and this message is very similar to other prophetic words from the Lord in the Old Testament. And likely very similar to others that he's received himself. It's the implication of the way this is written, that it's very familiar to him. No cognitive barrier here. There's also no clarity barrier here for Jonah. The message is abundantly clear. God has not left out some part of the message that makes it mysterious to him. Now, those are simple realities, but the author wants us to see this clearly so that there may be no excuse The message and the command is well known to Jonah. But Jonah rejects the word of the Lord nonetheless. Why? Is he afraid? Is it too far to travel? Well, something is motivating Jonah not to go. And the text does not immediately answer the question. But it's revealed pretty clearly later. And what we are to understand here is that Jonah knows God's command and rejects God's command. Because it is not an issue of cognition or clarity, we're left with one option. Namely, that Jonah rejects God's word on moral grounds. That is to say that something within Jonah distrusted God's word in favor of his own word. 
But Jonah's rejection of God's command does not stop at his obedience to go alone. In the mind of the author, Jonah is not just rejecting the command of God. No, it's much deeper than that. Continue on to Jonah chapter 1 verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. See, Jonah turns not just from the word, but from the presence of the Lord. Why does Jonah turn and flee? He runs. Well, what's in Jonah's mind that motivates him to run? Does Jonah believe that he can geographically flee from the presence of God? Is that what's going on in his mind? Certainly not. After all, Jonah is a prophet of God, and prophets were highly trained in the scriptures. He would probably, if not certainly, remember Psalm 139, which says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, Jonah knows about God. He's aware of the theological implications of Israel's God, namely his omnipresence, that he's in all places at all times. He's not fleeing geography. In fact, one of the only things that Jonah seems to consistently get right in this small book are his explanations of who God is. He tells the mariners on the ship later on in the same chapter that I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So true statements. Jonah is even able to explain that so clearly and persuasively to these men that they're driven to a fear of God. It says, then the men were exceedingly afraid. Later, when he explains why he ran, he confesses that it's because of who God is in a precise and apt description of God. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows plenty about God. His fleeing is not out of a theological or head knowledge problem of what God is like. Now, sometimes the answer to rebellion is a theological deficiency in our lives, that we're lacking some key piece. Sometimes. But often... All too often, as Jonah shows us, our doctrine can be very right and our hearts can be very wrong. The Proverbs 22 reminds us, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. There's two steps there. Knowing is not enough. It must be applied. Most of the time, it's the application of that word to our heart, as is the case with Jonah. So what's left then? Why does Jonah flee? Well, Jonah flees from God as an external indication of his rejection of God's word. He's showing us that to reject the word of God is to reject the deeper presence of God. Well, how should we define presence then as we see it in verse 3? Well, we we see that presence is actually a very significant theme in Scripture. It's a word and a theme that the original audience of this book would have been very familiar with. 
presence is used to describe the people of God living in the face of their God. It is what God's people are saved to. God's presence is among his people in response to their covenantal connection to him. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God prepared a place for his people to reside. And we're told that the presence of God was among them in such a way that it walked with them in the garden. It's God's presence that manifests and leads God's people by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud when they're in the wilderness after he rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He's present in such a way among them. It's God's presence that Moses requests to see on Sinai. It's no coincidence that it follows the golden calf incident in which the people have formed an idol to worship, if you recall. They've rejected God in favor of this idol. And Moses deals with the sin of idolatry among the people of God. And then he returns to the mountain and asks God to show him his glory, desiring to know that the presence of God is still among them. And we see that presence is also the central theme of the new heavens and the new earth that John is shown in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. These are but examples of what you were created for. Namely, presence with God. And rebellion against the revealed word of God synonymously rejects that presence. As it is exampled in Jonah. So there's no question to the original reader what's happening here. Jonah has rejected God's word and is necessarily rejecting his relationship with him. In other words, Jonah cannot reject the word and remain in fellowship, in presence with God. That sin separates him from God. Jonah is fleeing the presence of God that is attached to his covenant relation to God by neglecting obedience to his word. See, Jonah has seen that God is calling him through his word to go and preach to his enemies that they might repent. And as we see later in Jonah, it's not so simple as a theological misunderstanding. Jonah flees because he sees what God is doing and he no longer wants to be in his presence. He's overtly rejecting the promises of God. It's as if Jonah is saying that, his, that God's morality, if it looks like this, then his presence is worthless to me. It's lesser than my morality, says Jonah. Jonah diminishes God's righteousness in favor of his own. Jonah's response in fleeing from the presence of God is nothing less than a hatred of him for what he's calling him to do and a rejection of him because of God's character. What a shocking turn. The prophet of God, his representative who knows him, hears his command and rejects it on moral grounds. And so he rejects his presence and flees the land where God's presence is among his people. 
That's upside down. In short, Jonah is willing to make a trade. His moral compass for God's. He pays a fare and he flees the presence of the living God. Well, as I've said, Jonah is written to be a mirror for us. Something that's held up to us to reveal ourselves. And we should read it and we should identify with Jonah. See, we like Jonah stand morally opposed to God. We oppose God's revealed commands. And in doing so, we hold up our morality against God's just like Jonah did. And every time we sin, we do this. God's law is known to us. So sin is rejecting God's morality for mine. We trade presence with God for a ticket to Tarshish. Well, maybe you're thinking, I don't go out of my way to disobey God. I don't reject his word. Well, understand this. It's not just the big sins, if we can call them that, like murder and adultery, that are rejections of God's word and that separate us from God's presence. Even our failure to submit in thought separates us from that presence with God. Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Where? Out there in the world? No. And take every thought captive to Christ, Paul continues. How's your thought life? Is every opinion, is every thought that is raised taken captive to obey Christ? It's so easy to deceive ourselves, isn't it? Jonah's an example of that. Here's a man who's on the run from God because he doesn't like his word. And we see later in verse 9 that he tells the sailors that he fears the Lord. The fact is that we can delude ourselves just like Jonah. I'll take Christ, but I'll ignore his word. Jesus doesn't let us be so self-deceived. He takes the external commands of God and pushes them to the level of the heart. How do you feel about those harder commands of Scripture? See, Jesus says that you have heard it said that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, says Jesus, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What do you do with those harder commands of scripture? How are you doing with that? Are all those thoughts taken captive? It's not just your ability to not murder and not commit adultery, though those are condemnable. It's your ability to actively and constantly take all of those premeditated and hidden desires that lurk in your heart captive to obey Christ. Are all those captive or is there some passivity to let them linger in your heart? See, passivity to God's command is still rebellion, whether it comes out or not. It is just as rebellious as Jonah's external depiction. In fact, the very first sin in the Bible 
is that way, isn't it? It's Adam's passivity, not his overt rebellion, that sends him out of the garden and flees him from the presence of God. Be careful with passivity, brothers and sisters. And so we flee from God's presence when we oppose his clear command, just like Jonah. Well, maybe you agree, I'm guilty of sin, but I do not flee from God, not like Jonah did. Well, the truth is that the connection between obedience to God and our fellowship with God is just as linked in us as it was with Jonah. In fact, the original Hebrew audience, to them, those two are so intertwined that the Hebrew language links them in their root word, words for obedience and presence. The Hebrew-speaking audience could not think of or speak of obedience to God without being drawn to the theme of presence with God and vice versa. So let's define ourselves by Scripture and how it understands obedience and presence. Not how we desire things to be. See, we simply cannot remain in fellowship with God and disobey his word. A holy God cannot be in the presence of a sinful people. The relationship is always affected by the action. In this case, the disobedient action. So in a way, the text is asking us if there's any among us better than Jonah. And the answer is no. But while it's true that there are none better and that we are rejectors of God, just like Jonah, God does not leave us there. Because point number two, God is a rescuer of his people. God is a rescuer of his people. In our story, Jonah deserves retribution for his actions. The storm should come as God's judgment. The Old Testament tends to get accused of some nasty untruths. Chief among those is the misplaced notion that God is graceless in the Old Testament. He seems to be harsh, and so we don't like the God of the Old Testament. We're thinking that he's somehow different than the God of the New Testament. Well, in all of those thoughts, we tend to neglect the true grace of God in light of what we deserve. See, what, what does Jonah, for example deserve for such a moral rejection of God? How should the creation that was made in the image of its creator be handled when it rebels against that creator? When it violates his good and perfect law? When it hates him for his righteousness? Well, we find the answer in the precedent of the garden, don't we? On the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall surely die, God tells them. When you violate God's law, justice dictates that you die. But what does Jonah get? Well, the storm comes. The rest of the chapter is probably very familiar to us. A violent storm comes upon the waters that threatens to break up the ship and drown everyone. Is God out of bounds to send such a thing upon Jonah? I don't think so. He deserves far worse. He should never have taken another breath after he fed into the temptation to reject the word of God and flee the presence of the Lord. He should never have made it to a boat, let alone had the money to pay the fare, let alone found a comfortable place to sleep on the ship, let alone been warned by one of the sailors to come and pray to his God. And when he finally is confronted by his sin, 
which only happens by that divine pointer finger in the form of dice, Jonah has the audacity to tell the mariners that he fears the Lord. What an upside-down statement. Jonah doesn't seem to have much fear of the Lord. He stands strongly in opposition to him. But the grace of God continually gives Jonah his next breath and an opportunity to repent. If only he really believed all of that doctrine that he professes. That he knew that God was slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love and relenting from disaster as he has professed. Because now disaster has come upon him, hasn't it? But Jonah tries to save himself. For all of his knowledge about God factually, he has no knowledge of God intimately. And he has no gospel to see himself rightly so that he can throw himself at the mercy of the living God. Jonah shows himself to be just like the sailors who want to row harder to get back to shore and out of the wrath of God. Jonah wants to work his way out of this. How natural it is for us to try to develop schemes and ways to work our way out of God's wrath. We ask the same question as the sailors. What what can we do that the sea may quiet down for us? What can we do? How can I earn God's favor back? Maybe I can go to church enough. Maybe I can be good enough. If I put the right filter on my phone, it'll curb that addiction. Or maybe I can draw morality lines back far enough. Maybe I can be nice if I just give three compliments a day. Maybe if I'm theologically precise enough, if I nail down all the facts. Or maybe if I avoid theology altogether, depending on where your background comes from. Maybe if I use the right words. Or maybe I just don't use the wrong words. If I just appear moral enough, if I just row a little harder, maybe I can get back to shore. But we find ourselves just as powerless as Jonah is in the storm. And the only way to satisfy God's wrath is what Jonah inevitably turns to, and that is surrendering to God's wrath. Jonah decides that the best course is to appease the wrath of God by his own blood which is exactly where our moral standoff with God will lead us without the gospel. We have no righteousness that we bring to God, and so the only possible payment for our rebellion is our life. But it is God's appointment that saves Jonah. Jonah does not die. In an incredible twist to an already upside-down story, when Jonah is done running... And out of options, he's rescued. It is God who appoints salvation for Jonah from the storm of his wrath. See, Jonah tries to pay his way, but God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in that steadfast love, relents from disaster in his own willingness to spare Jonah from his gospelless belief. It is God who gives true gospel. In Mark chapter 4, we find a story that's very similar to Jonah's account. And it's parallel on purpose. See, when Jesus is on the water sailing with his disciples, they find themselves in a storm that they cannot escape. Despite their best efforts, the disciples cannot get the ship under control. And just like the sailors in Jonah, uh, they cannot get it back to shore. 
And just like the sailors in Jonah, the disciples find Jesus asleep on the boat. And in the same way, they wake Jesus after doing everything they can to control their ship in the storm. Well, Jonah, in our account, has no power to calm the storm. But unlike Jonah, Jesus has the authority to calm the storm by his word. He rescues his faithless and untrusting disciples by his work. Just like the disciples, Jonah is saved from the storm, but his salvation comes by the divine appointment of a fish that entombs him for three days, paralleling Jonah to Jesus. See, like Jonah, you cannot rescue yourself. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel is this. God's grace is greater than your rebellion. While you were still a sinner, while you were opposed to God's law and held your morality up against his in your sin, just like Jonah, God gave his son to die the death that his people owed, rescuing them from his wrath. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, the life that you could not. He obediently followed the command of his father, God, even those commands that dwell in the heart and even unto death on the cross. And his death is the payment for what his people owed to God. He's taken what you owe and he's traded it for his righteousness. Once you turn from your sin, once you turn from your fleeing and believe in the work of Jesus. But the gospel does not end there. What an amazing truth and truths that go with us as we carry this faith throughout our life. If you're believing this gospel for salvation, then you know that you did not earn it any more than Jonah did. And so it is implied that just as you did not will yourself to God, you cannot will yourself away from God. What an incredible assurance for us as we walk through a world that does its best to pull us away from God. If it were up to you, if it were up to me, the world would succeed, wouldn't they? But Jonah shows us that there is no power that is sufficient to undo the power of the cross, including our own upside-down desires, our own doubts, our own defects. Church, preach this gospel to yourself daily. Cling to Christ in it. Jonah shows us that we are less like Rocky and more like Jonah. Each of us is the upside-down prophet of God. The one who stood in rebellion, but if you know him, was rescued by the faithfulness of God. Praise God that we do not have a Savior that is like us, but one that is right side up. Father, thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is complete. It is so revealing and so piercing as to who we are. Father, would you be gracious to save sinners, rebellious people, as you have promised? And would you cause us to live in the light of your gospel daily, that you would drive that deep into our hearts, that we would cherish you as the champion of our salvation for your good, for our good, Father, for your glory. Amen. Amen.